You're wondering what I was just doing here. It was a spider crawling all over my Bible. Um, can you guys reset that confidence monitor for when I actually begin the text? Thank you. Um, let's turn to the Bibles, to our Bibles, to the book of Romans. And we are drawing to a, um, a close. This is our penultimate but God sermon. The, um, the final one will be on Reformation Sunday, which will be very fitting. In the next couple of weeks, we'll be looking at a couple of topical sermons. And then starting in November, we're going to begin the Gospel of Luke. And so um, I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans chapter 5. And, and in Romans chapter 5, we're coming to this penultimate but God. And as you've noticed, there's been a crescendo and the crescendo in terms of these but gods and in intensity um, and in the power of each of these statements. And this one today is, is probably one of the most powerful. And I'll ask you to turn in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Almighty God, we bless you and thank you for this day. We thank you for the word that is powerful and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. Oh God, as we come before your word, we pray that you'd open our eyes of our heart, open our hearts, give us understanding. We pray that all pretense and pride that would interfere with our receiving the word would, would diminish. We pray that your Holy Spirit would touch each and every one of us to the core of our being. And that as even Paul said here, that we would rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, give us the, the delight of our souls to see Christ for all that he is today. I ask, Lord, that you would empower me as I preach. I am but, Lord, just a sinner saved by grace. And apart from your grace and apart from your power, I can do nothing. So please be glorified in your servant today. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're continuing in this But God series and in this continuation, we come to this final but God. And this final but God is that but God shows his love for sinners. In verse 8, in verse 8 it says, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the premise. That's the but God. That's the statement today. And we build on that premise because that premise is, is setting for us um, a contrast. In all of these but gods, there is a before the but God and there is an after the but God. Or there, 
is a, a contrast before that which is and that which is not, and, or that which was and that which will be. And so in all of these but gods, there is, a, there is a striking point where but God separates the two aspects or the two sides for it. But God is the critical change. It's what makes the difference. It's the but gods that allow us as believers to live life rather being uh, discouraged and weary to be filled with faith and hope. It's the but gods that allow us to be optimistic rather than pessimistic. It's the but gods that set us on a course for joy rather than anguish. And so in this next one, we see a contrast. And the contrast is what would man do in regards to sinful people and what God would do, right? We are told that with God, there is scarcely one who will die for a righteous person, right? There is scarcely one who will die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare die. What we're talking about is the idea of giving your life for someone, giving your life vicariously for someone. There is very rare instances where people will give their lives of their own will, of their own volition, without pressure or without any kind of uh, thought of recompense. People do not give their lives. By nature, we are survivalists. We seek to preserve our life and we seek to avoid to die. We seek to survive. On the other hand, when we think and consider that there are some people worth dying for, we question who are those people we would give our lives for. I think any parent here would say they would give their life for their child, right? You would give your life for your son or your daughter. I don't think there's any parent who wouldn't say that. And in that sense, our children may not even be good or righteous, but we would give our lives because of the love we have for them. But we're not talking about our children. We're talking about people in general. And there are very few people, scarcely will one give their lives for a righteous or good person. But God, but God is totally different. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We were not righteous. We were not good. No, there was nothing in us worth making a sacrifice for. And yet God showed his love. And what really comes into display here in this but God is the definition and the reality of the love of God. We left off last week with, with a, a very important truth that God loves us. That was the encouraging final point of our sermon, to know that God loves you and to know that love. And if you're a believer, that love is what sustains you. It's that love that empowers you. And it's the love that gets you through the dark times of life. And if you've never come to know the love of God, then we get back to basics. Have I truly come to faith? Because it's the love of God that is the, the thrust and the locus of the gospel. It's the love of God that demonstrates grace. It's the love of God that gives us the ability to be gracious and loving to others. Without the love of God, there is no Christianity. There is no gospel. It's all just a front. And so we come to this but God asking ourselves about God's love and the cosmic significance of the death of Christ in carrying out the plan of God to redeem lost humanity. Fundamentally, the death of Christ is the greatest act of love that God could show. It showcases his love not only to us, but to the world. It is the undeniable proof 
that there is no greater love in the world than God's love for his people. You see, the very definition is love is that love gives. Love enjoys giving. And the essence of love is giving. And so when we consider God's love for him, for us, it is bound up in the death of Christ. I want you to consider your own salvation. Consider how you came to Christ. Can we say with Paul, like in Galatians 2.21, that God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you know that God gave himself for you, then you know that he loved you. We define love as giving based on the measure, or the measure of love is determined based on some important factors. The cost of the gift and the worthiness of the beneficiary. The cost of the gift and the worthiness of the beneficiary. These two factors are what we're going to be examining and looking at in our sermon today. And the first aspect I really want to look at is the worthiness of the beneficiaries. Because when we contrast the love of God with the love of man, our love is exceedingly conditional. I'll love you if you love me. I'll be nice to you if you're nice to me. I'll be kind to you if you're kind to me. By nature, we are takers. By nature, we are not givers. Some of us, by nature, are greater takers than others. Some of us, by nature, are very more givers than others. You have givers and takers in life. But all of us, by nature, are takers to some extent or another. God's love is demonstrated in such a way that he gives all of himself. God could require it all, and he does. But he gives, and he gives love unconditionally. And there's only one unique word in the Greek language to describe such love. It's called agape love. It is love that is unconditional, it's unmerited. It is the, the pure love of God that loves solely on his will and determination to demonstrate love to those whom he chooses. It's not because we're lovely, but it's because God is filled with love. So let's examine the first thing, the worthiness of the beneficiary. Who did Christ die for? All right, so, so, so let's, let's examine ourselves. Let's see the worthiness of ourselves to receive the love of God. Most people will, when you ask them in evangelistic uh, outreaches, if they're good people, they will confess, yes, I'm good. And I think most people think inherently that they deserve to be saved, that they deserve to be rescued, that they deserve God's love, that they deserve God's benefits, they deserve God's grace. And quite frankly, that's just the way we reason. It's human logic. But God's love is beyond human logic. God's love transcends human logic because God's love is not human, it's divine. So who are the beneficiaries? There are four ugly descriptors given here in our passage to describe those whom God loves. Number one, we are weak. We are weak. Verse eight. Verse 6, while we were still weak. This weakness here is described by the Greek word asthenes, asthenes. And this word in the Greek means to be feeble, to be impotent, to be frail, without strength and helpless. And so what God is saying is that we are weak. We are cripples. 
Now, is he talking about our physical stature? No. Is he talking about our mental stature? No. What God is talking about is our spiritual stature. Before God, we are all weak, frail cripples. No, do not boast in your spirituality. Do not think that you are religious before God because before God, we are all very weak. We are powerless. There is nothing you could do in your own strength to please God. There is nothing you could do to get right with God. There is nothing you could do that will uh, give God glory in your own strength. We are helpless. Through the... Through the Gospels, we see accounts of Jesus healing the crippled, healing the blind, healing the weak. It's a demonstration, it's a parable to demonstrate to us that until we see ourselves as utterly helpless, utterly weak, and utterly powerless, we cannot experience the power of God in our lives. As long as you think that you have the power and strength in yourself to accomplish things, you will never accomplish anything. Any spiritual achievement that succeeds will be based on the power of God, not in us. We are utterly destitute. And so our weakness must be seen as our total inability to do anything pleasing to God. Contrary to the popular cliche, God helps those who help themselves. God helps those who know how helpless they are. Secondly, the ungodly. This is another descriptor of us. Who God saves. We are ungodly. I mean, this fulfills within Romans, right? The Bible tells us that all men have suppressed the truth and unrighteousness, that all are without excuse. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is none righteous. But the word ungodly is a very strong word. It basically means to have no fear of God. In Romans 3.18 Paul says there is no fear of God before their eyes. This describes man in his separation from God. When you look around the world and you look at yourself in your pre-converted state, what do we see? That we were ungodly. We had no fear of God. We had no no sense of, of what it means to be like God. Our whole lives were contrary to God. To be ungodly means to be the opposite of God. It means to be to be opposed to God. It means to be anti-God. Because we don't fear God. We can care less about God or what he thinks about our lives. And when we look at the world the way it is today, we can say, like Romans 3.18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. People would not do the things they do if they feared God. There are certain things that I will not do. There are boundaries I don't cross First and foremost, because I love God as a Christian. But when my love is weak, the fear of God kicks in. Because I know God is just. And I know God is righteous. And I know what the Bible says, that the wages of sin is death. I have lived long enough and been a Christian long enough to see too many people cross those lines. And I've seen what's happened to them. And I say, oh Lord, that's scary. You don't need to see Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 get struck dead to have the fear of God put into you. If you live long enough and you see people who cross the lines, you will see the fear of God and God striking and dealing with people. I don't want to be on the receiving end of God's wrath. 
I don't want to be on the receiving end of God's discipline. I fear God. The ungodly have no fear of God. They go around as if nothing's going to happen. And sometimes we say, but Lord, why aren't you interceding? Why are you letting the wicked continue to be wicked? It's almost sometimes you wonder, is God even around? In our prayer meeting today, we said God is on his throne. He's not troubled by the things going on. God sees and knows all. He's perfectly God has decreed everything, but God has a purpose for everything. Every evil under the sun is a result of God's righteous decrees, and he has a purpose for them, and he is not shaken. The ungodly and the unrighteous will meet their doom on judgment day. Thirdly, we are described as enemies. By nature, we are not God's friends. We are his enemies. If you are not in Christ, you are an enemy of God. You are, not an, en- you are an enemy of God. Now, I want you to think about that because to say that you're his enemy means there's enmity between man and God. And Romans 8, 7 confirms it says the carnal mind or the fleshly mind is at enmity with God. And all unbelievers, those who are not filled with the Holy Spirit, those who are not born again, have a mind that's controlled by the flesh. And if your mind is controlled by the flesh, which is your sinful nature, you inherently, by your nature, are at war with God. You hate God. You go and ask people in the street, do you hate God? What are you, crazy? What are you talking about? Right? People don't say they hate God. There's not that rank hostility. The hostility is demonstrated not so much in the hatred of God, but the hatred of his law and his word. You see, everybody serves a God of their imagination. But once you start opening the Bible and showing them through the pages of Scripture who God really is, the hostility will bubble over. You see, at the end of the day, the enmity between us and God is really a battle for supremacy. You see, any war is a battle for supremacy, isn't it? Any hostility is a battle for supremacy. When people are enemies, it's it's a battle to see who's going to win. And what we're simply saying is, I will rule my life. I will determine my fate. I will be the captain of my own ship. You will not rule over me, God. God says, I not only created you, but I have a right to rule you. You are in rebellion against me. You're my enemy. When someone rebels against the government, what do we call them? An enemy of the state. And essentially, we are enemies of the state, which brings me to the next point, the next descriptor. We are sinners. Now, that word has lost its power because most people do not know what sin is today. Not too long ago, I went to a church in New York City, and the pastor was preaching, and he said, sin is the, is the bad things you do to yourself and the bad things you do to others. I never heard such a faulty definition of sin in my life. God have mercy on any pastor who would preach that because what it does is it waters down the essence and meaning of what sin is. The definition of sin is given us to in the Bible in 1 John 3, 4, that sin is the transgression of God's law. It is lawlessness. God gives law. God is in authority. He he is the king. And these laws govern our moral being. 
And when you violate and transgress those laws and defy those laws, you have sinned against a God who is holy and righteous. You're a criminal. When you break laws in this world, you're you're called what? A criminal. And so to say you are a sinner is to say you are a criminal. But the word sinner, the word sin in Hebrew, and there's many different meanings, the, the, the primary meaning is simply mean missing the mark. It means falling short. It means being defective. It means not measuring up. God has set his standard. And that standard must be met. And when you come short, no matter how close you are, it's not close enough. You are a sinner because you miss the mark. We're all guilty of this, aren't we? You know what? Crime has to be punished. Crime must be dealt with. We're seeing the effects of what happens in a society when lawlessness abounds, when crime is not punished. You have anarchy. You have chaos. And we're seeing that more and more in our society. And anarchy and chaos is never good for society. How much more in the moral order of God's kingdom? God cannot tolerate anarchy. God cannot tolerate wickedness. And so we bring to this point in seeing the description of us as the beneficiaries of God's love, it's not flattering, is it? We are totally unworthy of the love of God. And yet that's what makes the statement so powerful. But God showed his love to us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It wasn't, it, notice, while we were yet sinners. Not that you became better people than God loved you. It's not as if you have to do something first to merit God's love. While you were yet sinners, while you were yet the pig in your, in your mud pit, God loved you. In the filth and degradation of your sin, while you were in your sin, Christ died for you. Totally worthless. And yet God places immense value. How much value? The value of his only son. You see, we could only measure the the value of the gift based on the price tag on it, right? Right? Someone buys you a cheap gift. You look at him, and boy, that's cheap, you know? Right? If it's coming from a person of little means, of course, anything is valuable. But but I, I never I always think it's funny when I when, when I know someone is well off and they give a gift and it's, it's really, really cheap and there's not much thought into it, you know that the person doesn't think much of you, right? The gift, when it's given, it's of immense value. It says what the person thinks of you, right? When, 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 when a husband or when a man proposes to a woman to be his wife, he gives him a ring and the, the value demonstrates what he thinks of that woman. If he thinks little of her, the ring will be very little, if he thinks much of her, the ring demonstrates the value that he places on that relationship. The value of the gift that God gave to us is nothing less than the life of his own son. One would scarcely give their life for a righteous person. One would scarcely give their life for a good person. But we are just these vile, wretched sinners, and the Bible's saying 
That Christ died for us. He gave his life for us. Why? Why would he do that? That's what I'm thinking. I wouldn't give my life for no one, and that's exactly the whole point. Now, in life, you do have people that give their lives, right? We, we see firemen and police, they, they give their lives sometimes in the, in, in the service. That's because they take an oath to do so, and they're paid a salary to do so. And furthermore, there's a calculated risk. They try not to die. No one's throwing themselves into a flame. Soldiers are conscripted or volunteer, and they know that when they go to war, there's a calculated risk. Knowing the odds, they assume they will not die, but they, it's a gamble they take. But there are few who will give their lives. I was reading recently about a story of a woman who was diagnosed with cancer when she was pregnant. And they said, the only way we could save your life is it, and, and give you chemo is if you abort the baby. And the woman said, no, I will not abort my baby. I will give my baby life. And the baby came to full term and was born. She gave her life because one year later, the mother died. Did she do the right thing? Absolutely. That's love. You give your life for another. But she gave her life for her daughter. Christ gave his life for his enemies, for sinners, for for weak people, for ungodly people. The measure of the worth of the gift is based on the value. I want you to think about this because this tells us about God's love. It tells us how immense his love is because the gift is priceless. In fact, in the New Testament, you will not find any expression of God's love apart from the cross of Christ. Every expression. For God so loved the world that he what? Gave. He gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. The the premise of God's love is always the gift of his son. You cannot know the love of God apart from Christ Jesus. And the point is this, Christ died for you and me. It was a vicarious death. That means he died in our place. You see, this is understanding the gospel. It's understanding the gospel because you and I deserve the death. You and I deserve to pay for our sins and our crimes in eternity from hell. And that's where the text takes us, right? It says, it says here in verse 9, since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more we, we shall be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're talking about salvation here. You know what salvation is? It's being rescued. It's being delivered. The concept of salvation dates back to the Exodus when, when God rescued and saved his people from the tyranny of Pharaoh, from slavery, and delivered them into the promised land. But the New Testament describes the greater tyranny and the greater oppression, and that is sin. We're all slaves to sin. We're in bondage to sin. And the wages of sin, we've earned nothing but death. We're criminals against God, and the penalty is death, the death penalty. When you look in the Old Testament, how many sins that you would be stoned to death for? None of us here would probably be alive if we lived in Old Testament Israel, because most of us would have earned a death penalty already. It's to demonstrate how serious sin is. So serious it is that God sends human beings forever into a place of destruction called hell with the devil and his angels to be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
How can such an awful place exist? It exists because sin is so awful. I've often heard the question, well, God can't be righteous. I mean, why would he let anyone suffer forever? That's so unfair. It's because you have sinned against an eternal God without beginning and without end. So your sin has an eternal value to it. Your sin carries an eternal weight to it. And therefore, your sin must be punished eternally. Hell cannot cease to exist as long as God exists. And as long as God exists forever and our sins offend him forever, our sins must be punished in hell forever. That is the death which the Bible describes as the second death which we all deserve. But God saved us from it. That's the irony of this all. God saved us from what? From God. God saved us from God. It's God's wrath that is our greatest enemy. It's not Satan. God didn't save me from Satan. God saved me from himself. I'm, I'm destined to face the wrath of God. I mean, look at what it says in, in, in 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Listen to what is happening on Judgment Day. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, it's when Christ returns and his mighty angels in flaming fire inflict vengeance on those who do not know God. On those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. It will be forever. God will judge sinners. But God shows his love for us. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What are the implications of that? Well, the implications are are deep. right? We're told in in, in our verse 9, Since therefore we've now been justified in his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we looked at salvation. While we were enemies, we were reconciled by his death. How much more than that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So we experience justification. We experience reconciliation. And we experience life. That reconciliation means that that enmity between us and God has been, has been done away with. Romans chapter 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that satisfaction can only occur because of the blood of Christ. It is the blood of Jesus. It is through his death that sin is atoned for. The Old Testament gives us all of these examples of, of blood sacrifice. What, what a bloody religion. When you look, you know, I, I've often thought, man, if we lived in those times, do you realize that the temple, that the alternate temple flowed with blood from morning till evening? Being, you know, I see sometimes butchers. My, my dad was a butcher. My grandfather was a butcher. And you're in a supermarket. Sometimes you see butchers and they're hacking away and there's blood and it's a bloody job. But that's exactly what the priests in the Old Testament were. They were butchers. They, they had to slaughter animals and take the blood and pour it on the altar and butcher the meat. Their clothes were covered in blood. And that's the imagery because in blood is life. And in order for God to rescue us from death, there must be a payment of blood. 
It's the blood of Jesus that saves us. It's the blood of Jesus that was poured out on Calvary. His blood atones for our sin. It makes satisfaction for God's wrath. It appeases the wrath of God. It it propitiates for us. Without the blood of Jesus, we are lost. And through the blood of Jesus, we're justified. That forensic term that is used over and over in Paul's letters are laden with meaning. It means that you are declared a just person in the eyes of God. It is a legal declaration. It's not something, you're not just because you're a just person. We're wicked, we're sinners, we're enemies, we're rebels. Our nature is anything but just. We are unrighteous. The Bible describes us as wicked, ungodly. But God justifies the ungodly. That's the whole premise of the gospel. God justifying the ungodly. God taking filthy sinners and saying, now you are righteous. You have have a place in my kingdom. And that's something only God can do. No other human being can justify you. On judgment day, if I stand before God, there are no lawyers in heaven, right? right? You get convicted of a crime in this country, you could go out there and if you have enough money, you could hire the best lawyers in the country to, to make your case and, and advocate for you and try to justify you before a judge. On judgment day, we will have no lawyers. You either have Christ as your advocate or you have nothing. You either die in your sin or you die in Christ. I want you to think about the weight of this because we're all going to die. I don't think we take life serious enough. I've seen a lot of people die over the years. Not everybody is old. I see a lot of young people die. I buried some young people. I buried a young man in his 20s a few years ago. Died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. You don't know when your time is up. Are we ready to face the Lord Jesus? I think about that myself very often. In fact, I think about death. My wife thinks I'm kind of morbid because I think about dying quite a bit. I'm very mindful that I will stand before God one day and have to give an account for myself. Are you? I pray that we would all be a little more morbid because it's not morbid to think about your impending death. It is sobering, it is realistic, and it is inevitable. Not only do we find justification in Christ, but we find life. He didn't just die for us, but Jesus lives for us. He rose from the dead. The complete gospel tells us that Christ not only died for sinners, but he rose for sinners. Christ is alive, my brothers and sisters. He is alive. He is in heaven. He rules heaven and earth by his righteousness. And because he lives, we live in him. 
the life of Christ flows through us. That's the only way that we can live. And that life promises one day we will be resurrected from the dead. It tells us in Romans 8, 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. This is the part of our salvation that is yet to be accomplished. We're saved from the wrath of God, but, but the fullness of our salvation is realized when our body is redeemed. Romans 13, 11, Paul says, besides this, you know that the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. We are getting closer every day to the resurrection and our ultimate salvation is nearer to us than when we first came to faith. What more can we say about the love of God? He justifies us. He reconciles us to himself. We were his enemies. Oh, can anything much more be said? I think Brother Frank was so wise in interpreting that text. If God were to mark iniquity, who could stand? And yet, I think we are very good at marking iniquity. God doesn't mark iniquity, but we are experts at it. But when God grips your heart, when the gospel grips your heart, it's a game changer. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord. One time we were without fear. Now, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope that it is also known to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart for we are beside ourselves it is for God if we are in our right mind it is for you for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this that one has died for all therefore all have died and he died that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised That's the life of Christ. The love of God controls the life of Christ. We're burdened for the loss. We're burdened for the glory of God. And we're burdened because why we were reconciled. I was once God's enemy. And now I'm seated at his table. I was once estranged. I was once once without hope in this world. I I was a weak sinner, worthless. And God took me, cleaned me up, and made me a jewel of grace. Amen is right. So this brings us to the question of of God's love. Do you know that you're loved today? Do you know the love of God for you? If you don't know that God loves you after hearing this passage, after understanding these realities, you never will know the love of God. God can't say it any louder. But... In reality, as human beings and in the flesh, we're limited, right? We're limited by our remaining sinful nature. We're limited by the flesh. We're limited by, you know, the, the world that we live in. So, so I, I thought about this, and, I, and as I was preparing a sermon, God was laid on my heart to pray like Paul for the church. And this is the prayer that I think we should pray not only for ourselves, but for each other. 
The same, Paul, the same prayer that Paul prayed in Ephesians 3.17. Pray so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray that all for each other. That we may all have, know the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth. To know this love that surpasses knowledge and that we may be filled with the fullness of God. I tell you, if we sincerely pray that for one another, we will see the work of God in our midst. I love that passage because what Paul is really praying for is that we would have a deeper understanding of the dimensions of God's love. And I love those those analogies, those four dimensions, the height, the depth, the length, and the width. Christ's love is wide enough that it embraces the whole world. It is long enough that it lasts forever. It is high enough to take sinners to heaven. And it is deep enough to reach the lowest pits of sin in this world. A.W. Tozer says this, because God is self-existence, His love has no beginning because he's eternal. His love can have no end because he's infinite. It has no limit because he is holy. It is the quintessence of spotless purity because he is immense. His love is an incomprehensibly vast, bottomless, shoreless sea. Praise God. Oh, that we would have a greater comprehension. It surpasses human knowledge. It surpasses human knowledge. John Piper says, every true Christian knows the love of God, not just as an argument, but as an experience. The Holy Spirit has opened the eyes of the heart to see the precious and beauty of the love of God in Christ for what it really is. And we have been moved by a spiritual sense of that love in the heart to cherish and value and treasure and trust this Christ and love of God in him He goes on to say, this is what it means to be a Christian. God is love. And if God is love and he has demonstrated his love to us through his son, he has shed abroad his love in our hearts. And if he shed a love, his broad in our hearts, then we by nature will love others. Well, I am am really humbled by this passage, I'm really, I've been really moved by my study and my presentation of this gospel. But I want us to consider the gravity of this message as we conclude. I want you to go back to Romans chapter 5 and look at something. Look at the conclusion of the passage. And it's how I began today's message In chapter 5, it says in verse 11, more than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. Rejoice! That's the takeaway. Shake off those, those the, the, the depression. Shake off the anxiety. Shake off the fear. Shake off the worry. Shake it off, man. Rejoice! Rejoice! 
I know life is hard and some of us got problems. Some of us have more problems than others, but there's always someone who has worse. It could be much worse. Rejoice, you've been reconciled to God. Christ died for you. He died for me. He gave his blood. What more could you want in life? Is it not enough? Is Christ not enough? Is the cross not enough? Oh, God loves you. And he can't say it any louder. Rejoice. Rejoice. Take joy. I can't force you to be joyful. I could preach some blue in the face. It's not going to make a difference. The joy is going to be the natural reaction that when the mind and the heart embrace this reality and truth, that's the fruit of the Spirit. That's faith. And that joy will lead us to joyful work for Christ. That whatever we do, if God calls us to great ministry, maybe we're called to be like Billy Graham and preach to millions, or if God calls us to sweep the floors for Christ, whatever we're called, we have joy. Whether you're in obscurity like Moses for 40 years in the middle of the wilderness, or whether you're in the spotlight, be joyful, rejoice. I don't know what else I could say than that. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this message. I thank you for your word. Oh God, this gospel is the power. It's the power of you unto salvation. I pray that that power would touch the hearts and lives of people here today who don't know you. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know your love and does not know the saving power of the gospel, wake them up, Lord. Raise them from the spiritual dead. Give them eyes to see. Give them hearts to behold. Change their wills that they would seek you, Jesus. For those of us, Lord, who know you, forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for losing our focus for that which is of first importance, the gospel. Help us, O Lord, that as we sit at the foot of the cross, we would all be humbled before you. And may every vestige of pride and carnality be driven from our souls. We we beseech you, Lord, purify us for your namesake. Amen.